Well, certainly we all need to be keeping uh, Brother Cody and uh, Sister Courtney in our prayers so that they can be back among us again and um, back at the uh, usual work of teaching and preaching. I have said before, but I do believe that uh, the congregation is fortunate to have uh, Cody uh, as a preacher here, especially as a young man, as, as I see him. He, um, he sticks with the Word of God and does the best he can with presenting lessons, which is all any of us can do the best, the best we can. So let's continue praying for him and for Cody or Courtney. Back when I was uh, in my mid-twenties, as a student in school, I remember Brother Troy Cummings saying that uh, after having studied the Bible for some 40 years, that there are just some things you, you feel like you have to say. And it's because there are things you see when you get older. Well, I was still young at the time and struggling to see anything. Uh, Mortimer Adler is, was the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia Britannica, probably the best read man I had ever, ever run across. And he said in one of his two autobiographies that he didn't think that he was a well-educated man until he was in his 60s. And I think I read that when I was in my 30s. And so I figured I have some time to go. I don't know that everyone is well-educated when they get to be in their 60s, but Mortimer Adler certainly was. Well, there are things that you see, I think, the more you read Scripture and the more you study them uh, daily and routinely, um, you know, decade after decade. And there are some things I think I see that have been of great benefit to me. And uh, one of them is a study method. And I want to present that to you by giving you an illustration of it. You know, in uh, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews uses a fascinating technique in contrasting Jesus with the angels in chapters 1 and 2, with Moses in chapter 3, with Joshua in chapter 4, and Aaron in chapter 5. He is... is contrasting the two, uh, Jesus with each one of these entities, Old Testament entities, to make a point. Jesus, in the gospel accounts, contrasts or compares himself with uh, Solomon and Jonah. And uh, so think about that, contrasting, contrasting characters in Scripture. You can even contrast characters in the Bible that are not contrasted explicitly for us. Like, I think it would be fascinating to study the, uh, uh, the rich young ruler and the question he asks Jesus with the question that the, rich young, or that, uh, the Philippian jailer asks in Acts chapter 16. They both ask the same basic question, but with very different results. A man named Plutarch, years and years, decades, centuries ago, wrote a series that made it into the great books of the Western world uh, called Lives, in which he contrasted an ancient well-known Grecian with a well-known ancient Roman. And the purpose was not historic, but it was to 
draw contrasts and comparisons between people of similarity in order to teach the youth good morals. Well, I would like to uh, do something similar this evening by contrasting and comparing Adam, the first man, with David, the king of Israel. So I'll give you seven, what I believe to be seven comparisons and contrasts between the two. I'll make a few brief observations, all for the purpose of just simply reading without comment Psalm 51. That's where we'll be heading toward the end of the lesson. So first of all, let's survey the significant event, a significant event in each man's life. And let's begin with Adam. Adam is placed in the garden. He is described by some commentators as the federal head or fountainhead of the human race, which means whatever he does as the first human being may have some impact on humanity from his time on. And with Eve... He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and death finds its entrance into the world. So, uh, ideas, not, not only ideas have consequences, but actions have consequences as well. And consequences followed. Then there's David, King David and his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David remained in Jerusalem at the time that kings went to battle. You know the story. From his roof top, he sees Bathsheba, and he is stirred to desire her in a wrong way. So he sends for her, and uh, David lies with her, and she conceives. In a, in a rather clever attempt to hide the whole sordid affair, He sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, assuming that when Uriah comes home, he'll be with his wife and that'll cover the sin up between him, between David and Bathsheba. But Uriah refuses. So he eventually sends his faithful servant back to battle with a private note to those who are in command to place Uriah at the heat of the battle and then to step back and you know what happens. Uriah dies. Consequences follow. I'm not exactly sure how to make this second point but uh, women were involved in both accounts. Eve was beguiled by Satan to use the terminology of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But Adam was tempted through Eve. And Romans 5.12 says that as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death passed unto all men. David was tempted by Bathsheba. The Bible says nothing formally about Bathsheba and her role in this. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, though, without any further textual information to go on. Uh, Give her the benefit of the doubt and say she was an unwilling, played an unwilling role in the temptation. Remember what uh, James says in James chapter 1. Each man is drawn away by his own lust. You know that word lust 
is the word for desire in the Greek New Testament. Whether you see the word desire or lust, it's the same Greek word. But it's translated lust by translators when they, they are persuaded that it is a desire for something wrong. And, uh, and this occurred all when David was supposed to be off to war. Both men were confronted with the gravity of their sin. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God himself confronts them. And in Genesis 3 verse 19, Adam is told, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think one of the challenges that most of us face when we're confronted with temptation is is keeping the consequences in front of us. That's a huge problem for some people. They get involved in, say, an addiction of some sort, and consequences, the thought of consequences, are thrown out the window. Adam was confronted by God himself. David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells David a story about a selfish rich man who took one ewe lamb and, uh, of a poor man and fed his guests with it. He was unwilling to draw from his own abundant livestock. David was moved with indignation. That shows that he was a man after God's own heart. I'm not sure Nathan's story would have worked with everyone, but it did work with David. And in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 and 6, David said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, death death is pronounced on both men as well. Adam was forewarned, in the day you eat thereof, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Genesis 2 verse 17. He and Eve were kept kept from eating the tree of life. And again, Romans 5.12 comes to mind as it often does, I guess, in my mind. But, uh, you know, through one man, sin entered into the world. Nathan told David, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise you, raise up evil against you uh, out of your own house. 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. In verse 14, he says, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born of you shall die. Pretty steep consequences. And in verse 15, we're told the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And verse 18 says the child died. That is a very powerful way to get someone's attention. Both men had sons who died. Both were blessed with other sons as a sign of promise. Adam was blessed with Seth, and in Genesis 4.25, the Bible says, Adam knew uh, knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. In David's case, he took Bathsheba for himself, and she bore another son, and David called him Solomon. 
Nathan came with a message from God and called Solomon Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Solomon is also a son born according to promise. The promise found in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises to David that he will put someone, a descendant on his throne forever and ever. Both Adam and David experienced long-range consequences for their actions. You know, it's one thing to suffer a day or a week, maybe even a month, for the consequences of something we've done. But when it lasts months and years, that's a different thing, isn't it? And some people live with those consequences, even though they may have repented The long-range consequences of David's sin in adultery are defined for us in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 7 and reading through verse 15. 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, chapter 12, excuse me, verses 7 through 15. Nathan said to David, you are the man, after he tells him the story and David gives his uh, verdict against the man who took the poor man's ewe lamb to feed his guests when he had a whole flock of animals himself. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I am not sure you could find five people in the Bible that have explicitly said, I have sinned. I need to check myself on that one, but I don't think you're going to find more than five people that have ever uttered those words in the the Bible. And Nathan said to David, verse, uh, verse 13 still, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Sin without consequence? I don't think so. Uh, Unless, of course, you are in the Lord. If you're in the Lord, then you're free from the law that says when you sin, you die, according to Romans 8. And in the Lord, if we... Say we have no sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is probably the biggest difference between uh, those of us in the church and those who are out in the world. We have access to the Father. Romans 5 lists a number of the benefits or blessings we have being in Christ. One of them is access. I don't know that I've ever appreciated that until I was asked to teach Romans so many years ago. My eyes probably read over that word like it's read over so many others. But can you imagine not having access to God through the Son? Where that would leave all of us. So there, is con- there are consequences to sin. And uh, even, even though we may not suffer for the consequences of some sin, because we are in Christ, because Christ paid the price on the cross, there is overall consequences to sin, even if it's the death of Jesus on the cross. So let me make a couple of uh, brief observations. Number one, Adam, again, is the fountainhead or the federal head of the human race. What he did or failed to do in the garden would affect humanity. And what he did in the garden affects humanity. We die because of what happened in the garden. David is an example of offenders. He's one of many in uh, the scriptures since Adam. Both are types of man's rebellion against God's commands. God says to do something or not to do something, and we either don't do it or do what we're not supposed to do. That is a flagrant uh, example of walking against the will of God. I said earlier that there are a couple of ways of looking at the parallels between Adam and David. And years ago, I found an article that did just that very thing. And they said you can see a pattern between the two men. You see a fall. In other words, both men know the will of God, but they fail to do it. And so there is a fall, just like Genesis chapter 3. And then there's judgment, like the judgment that came to David through Nathan and the judgment that came to Adam by God himself. And then there's a curse. That's the consequence. Uh, Adam had his consequences Uh, They were spelled out in Genesis chapter 3. And David had his, uh, there were consequences of David's sins as well as spelled out in 2 Samuel for us. And then there's mercy. God is not wishing that any should perish. That's one of the great benefits and blessings that we have with uh, Yahweh as our God. There are, there is mercy. Think about those on the day of Pentecost who had days prior put the Son of God to death. Days prior they were crying out, crucify him. And then on the day of Pentecost, hearing the sermon of Peter, they are convinced that the one they cried out to be crucified was the Son of God. That they were wrong. They were guilty of having murdered the Son of God. And Peter told them there was something they could do to repent 
and be baptized, every one of them, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Each of us could, if we were to write our own stories, use that as a a pattern. We would talk about our life until we came to a decision that had to be made, and we made the wrong one. And we've all made the wrong one, more than once, I'm sure. So that's the fall. And then we talk about the consequences that come our way. They may not come the next day depending on what the crime is. But there are consequences, and we should not be so deceived as to believe there are not. There are no consequences. And so we suffer consequences for what we've done. And then there's the coming of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel. Uh, be interesting to, uh, just to see what everyone's circumstance may have been when they came to a knowledge of the truth. And we respond to it by belief that Jesus is the Christ, that he was raised from the dead, and we are baptized, and God forgives our sins. There's mercy. Every one of us, in one way or another, has followed the same suit that Adam followed, uh, actually patterned before us, and, and the way of David, even though the sins may not be the same. Well, let's take a look. Let's close by a reading of Psalm 51. There are, I believe, 14 or 15 psalms categorized as historic psalms. And they're, they're categorized as historic because just above verse 1, there's a brief historic note. And note in Psalm 51 what we find there. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So the very event we have been alluding to in Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12 is uh, being reflected on by David in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast away from your, me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. If anyone needs to respond to the invitation tonight, we encourage you to come forward now while we stand and sing.